0: Chef Life Radio is on the air. That's right. That's right. Welcome back, everybody. Blackberry Smoke. Believe you me, and if you haven't heard uh, their album, uh, Like an Arrow, you gotta check it out. The last table is served. The station is broken down. Everything is labeled and put away. Your inventory is complete. And now it's time to meet me on the back dock where all the most important meetings are held. Take a deep breath and enjoy a job well done. We, we Chef! We're about facilitating change in our current culinary career culture. Try to say that three times fast. We at Chef Life Radio believe that working in a kitchen should be demanding. It just shouldn't have to be demeaning. It should be hard. Just it doesn't have to be harsh. We believe that it's possible to have more solidarity and less suck it up sunshine. More compassion. Less cutthroat island. We believe in more partnership and less put up or shut up. More family. Less fuck you. We
1: oui, chef.
0: Hey, how about a nice glass of uh, Pedialyte? What do you say? Feeling fuzzy? This will clear you right up. What do you say, we? You jackass! We drop new episodes the first Sunday of every month. You can also subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, and now Google Play. Or you can catch us on Facebook at uh, Chef Life Radio. On Twitter, Chef Life Radio. That's right. Chef Life Radio is a production of Foodworks Incorporated, providing a safe haven for culinary professionals who want to grow and move forward in their career and life. This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audio download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash Radio. Great stuff ready for download. Get clear. Get ahead at audibletrial.com forward slash Radio. The Heirloom Foundation, a not-for-profit organization advocating for healthier work environments through their networks of chefs, restaurateurs, and other industry stakeholders who commit to providing a healthy, supportive restaurant culture. Don't just carp about how shitty things are. Take action and support your brothers and sisters at TheHeirloomFoundation.org. ChefsWithIssues.com. Enough said, right? For fuck's sake, man. Don't suffer in silence. Resources, solutions, and uh, kind hand up all can be found at ChefsWithIssues.com. Why? Because someone somewhere gives a fuck whether you live successfully or die before your time. And we welcome our newest partner, Entrepreneurial Chef Magazine, from idea to open for business. EntrepreneurialChef.com is building an online community where entrepreneurs in the industry can share lessons, best practices, and actionable advice for greater lasting success. Visit EntrepreneurialChef.com, join the club, and get your free copy of The 10 Rules of Entrepreneurship. In this episode, we talked to Joel Salatin of Polyface Farms. And if the name is new to you, well, let me tell you, you're in for a treat. He not only runs one of the most progressive, low-tech, biodiverse operations in the world, but he's a bit of a raconteur. He's been labeled by some in the government as an eco-terrorist, since all of the birds on his farm are raised without antibiotics and hormones, and as such, pose a threat to uh, neighboring farms, should the birds find love elsewhere, if you know what I mean. Me and B saw him speak in Monterey, Virginia, and he was engaging, enlightening, and thought-provoking. Having said all that, instead of starting with a couple of chef quotes... We thought we'd let Joel's words start us off. first quote is, Outrageous behavior, also known as the lunatic fringe, is the seedbed of innovation and creativity. And to that, I say, oh, hell yeah.
2: Oh, yes, chef.
0: That ought to be our stewardship mandate to create Edens wherever we go. That's why humans are here. Our responsibility is to extend forgiveness into the landscape. If we fail to appreciate the soul that Easternism gives us, then what we have is a disconnected, Greco-Roman, Western, egocentric, compartmentalized, reductionist, fragmented, linear thought process that counts on cleverness. Lastly, he would describe himself as, I'm a Christian, libertarian, environmentalist, capitalist, lunatic. It's a humorous way for me to describe that I am not stereotypical. That's all by our guest uh, today, Joel Salatin of Polyface Farms, and we'll have the interview a bit later in the show. If we're going to be talking to Joel about his operation, I thought I should tell you another kind of story of another kind of operation. A little while ago, I took a tour of a packing plant in Fort Morgan, Colorado, with a few other chefs put together by my very good friend, Brendan Flanagan. I could get into much detail about the actual site visit, but suffice it to say it was an operation of massive proportions where nothing but nothing goes to waste. Inside the meatpacking plant, I watched an army of intent Latinos with lightning reflexes, flash knives, and hand hooks as they unhurriedly worked in concert, keeping up with the incessant rumbling of the conveyor belt. I saw buckets of esophaguses that the company ships to another wholly-owned subsidiary pharmaceutical company that makes arthritis medicine. Skin, skulls, eyes, intestines, they all get used in some way. It's an odd sort of integrity that the cattle are respected in a way where there's nothing left to chance or waste. Instead of just taking what's needed at the time or what's more valuable and leaving the rest to rot, as a percentage, I probably throw out more food in my fridge at home than that plant op- than the plant operators do in any given day. The plant even went so far as to hire a famous savant to assess the path that the cattle take through the facility. The animals were becoming anxious in the holding pens, releasing large amounts of lactic acid into the muscles resulting in tough meat. The woman got on her hands and knees, just like a cow, crawling the path that they take towards becoming steaks. She found several areas which she said, if improved, would allow the cows to be more calm and serene on their way to be killed. The processing plant redesigned the pens, spiral path, and assembly procedures to implement the savant's suggestions. Apparently she was right, because the cows now go to their death with nary a sound. There are families to be fed, after all. Myers, guitar picker. It was an eye-opening experience. It was impossible to shut my eyes to the efficiency of the killing machine and the vacant stares of the cows waiting in line for their fate. Later after the tour, we were escorted to a local cafeteria where the menu prominently featured, yep, you guessed it, beef. The burger I ordered wasn't easily going down past the knot left in my throat by the sight visit and the memories of what I had witnessed. The feedlots showed a more distressing side of the whole factory farming process. After speaking with the foreman and watching these modern-day cowboys tending to the pens filled with cattle, they're only to be fed and fattened before slaughter. I got the impression that these men were serious, sober fellows who attend to their business in a serious manner. They do what they think is right in a manner befitting the task, as gruesome as it might be to some. It's a tricky business feeding the masses, and there have been many lean times for the folks in the cattle pipeline. There are very few years when each of the links in the beef chain, mating, birthing ranchers, feedlot operators, or processing plants makes money consistently. There are cryptic formulations used to measure the potential yield of an animal, and there's little guarantee that the animal will make it all the way from mother to market. If, after all, the care and feeding of a particular animal it stumbles and is unable to make it from the truck through the pens up the winding pathway to the knockbox, USDA regulations state that the animal must be euthanized and discarded. There is no helping an unstable animal to its doom. Notwithstanding the philosophical debate about whether the animals are being treated humanely, if we're looking for someone to blame for the conditions that the cows are raised and ultimately processed in we need to look no further than our reflection in the mirror we're to blame we've gotten used to quick service inexpensive prices and year-round availability providers are merely filling our needs as we've defined them by our shopping and consumption patterns If there is to be change for whatever reason then we as individuals get to take responsibility and initiate that change by the habits that we keep habits by their very nature exist without our conscious thought therefore when the shift occurs it must come from a conscious choice which, made often enough in the same manner, creates a new habit, but this one this time one formed of informed consent and affirmation. It's the height of hypocrisy to believe that we, as a nation, can wolf down a million cheap burgers a year and not know that it all started out west on the high plains of Colorado, with a cow walking off a semi tractor trailer on its way just up the ramp to the knockbox. <laughs> e <laughs> spinner someone who is less concerned about looking for answers than creating solutions our guest Joel Salatin he sat down with me for a frank and transparent conversation and rather than me try to well try to give some lame-ass introduction I'll just let him do the talking okay so I'd like to welcome to the show uh provocateur and uh agent of change Joel
3: Salatin Mr. Salatin thanks very much for being with us Thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you.
0: Now, uh, Joel, uh, for for anyone who's perhaps lived under a rock uh, for the last, uh, say, fifteen years, uh, can you bring them up to speed about uh, what what you're doing and um, uh, and uh, how Polyface Farms fits into that?
3: Oh well, I'm uh, I'm here in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. And uh, I'm on a farm that my parents bought in 1961. I was just four years old at the time. It was a rock pile, uh, gullies and rock pile and the cheapest, uh, kind of the armpit place of the community. That's why they bought it, because it was cheap. And uh, over the years, we've gradually um, healed that up, stopped the erosion, built ponds, increased soil, got the, the rocks uh, soiled over, and... Um, and today we supply about six thousand uh families, fifty restaurants, a farmers market, uh an electronic uh local foods aggregator, um and of course sell here at the farm uh and support about twenty families in a in a pastured livestock uh type of, of uh, farm. So it's been uh productive and very uh, very exciting.
0: I've heard you say that uh uh, I actually had the good fortune of uh, listening to a, a, a live presentation uh, to you uh, not too long ago um, in uh, up the road in Monterey uh, in Highland County. Uh, and uh, I had been following your work ever since probably, gosh, I don't know, the omnivores dilemma, which I'm sure a lot of uh, the listeners are, are familiar with. Uh, but uh, you often refer to yourself as a grass farmer, correct?
3: yes mm-hmm. um, yeah well the, the idea is that you know when when people say well you know you sure been clever um, actually the principles that we have followed have been uh, fairly uh, you know, fairly simple and and not very many of them uh, when you look at nature you look at how things work uh, you realize that it's it's um, first of all there's there's no animal ecology so all healthy ecologies have animals. And uh, guess what? Those animals move. They don't stay stationary, they don't stay in the same place. They don't they're not locked up in buildings. So, as soon as you integrate animals with the ecology and then you have animals that can move, now you have to have movable uh movable infrastructure, water, shelter, control mechanisms. And um, and the basis of those animals is always grass, or sometimes we you know we would call it prairie. Um, and in fact, all of the great deep, rich soils on the planet were built not under trees or bushes, but under uh, prairie, um, because grass is more efficient at converting solar energy into biomass than anything else. So, um, so the herbivores, of course, prune the prairie. So that means it's it's primarily uh, Focused on perennials, not annuals. They have to be planted every year, but perennials, you know, grasses that grow all the time. Fertility comes from carbon on site, not carbon off site. Nature doesn't move carbon very far, so we've got to figure out how to how to close that solar loop of, of biomass to to decomposition to regeneration, you know, on site. And then, um, you know, nature tends to not move things too far. So you know we're we're big on uh, on, on uh, local centric local centric systems. Now it doesn't mean that you don't buy coffee or bananas or whatever, <laughs> but um, but as, as much as as much as possible, uh, if it can be grown locally, it it should be grown and consumed and um, you know and sold uh, locally as well. And so you know, a, a local centric systems. And then I would say finally. Um, that that good systems are are uh people centric um as opposed to machine centric and um when we go to a people centric system puts more um eyes and accountability on the system which um actually you know creates creates more inherent integrity in the system as opposed to just a mechanical situation where there aren't any or personal, you know, personal involvement with the with the system. So you know, those those are those are fairly simple, um, but they're when you start looking at them, they're pretty profound
0: and pretty dynamic. The way that they yeah. the, the way that they interplay with one another. I'd heard you once uh, describe that you know that lovely Shenandoah Valley, or that portion of the Shenandoah Valley where you do your farming, kind of like uh, as a food shed. Uh, where you once uh, refused to send somebody uh, some product that was over four hours away because, as far as you were concerned, that was kind of outside the, the maximum operating capacity of the farm. Would, it, would that be correct? Uh,
3: yes. Yeah, we, we don't go beyond four miles from the farm. Uh, that's arbitrary. There's nothing moral or immoral about that. It's just our arbitrary circle that we've drawn. And what it does is it, it, um, uh, it, it makes sure that all of our customers – can get here and back in a day it makes sure that our delivery drivers don't have to spend the night on the road they can get back to their families uh there's a lot of benefits uh to you know to kind of drawing that arbitrary circle um that doesn't mean that if i were in montana or idaho or wyoming or something and it was 100 miles to a coke machine that i would do the same thing sure some of these things are relative but um but you you get you get the idea
0: i certainly do and um You know, Some of our listeners might be a bit perplexed while I I, I brought you on the show. As a matter of fact, you're our very first non-chef guest that we've had on Chef Life Radio. But as the show has progressed, we've realized the the desire and the need to bring on guests who would perhaps maybe challenge the status quo or at least offer up some questions that we as professionals uh, need to start asking ourselves. And and I want to kind of like... I don't want to be an apologist, but I, but I, have to call myself out on the carpet and say that I have been been part of uh, an integral part of an industry that has uh, brought uh, a lot of our systems in nature to the brink of collapse in an unsustainable manner. I've been a chef for over 35 years, and for a long time, uh, either I didn't give a shit or I was just unaware. And, and I don't know how many others there are out there in the in the audience, but uh, I'm just going to say, uh, you know, Joel, what is it that I don't get? Because if we certainly, if we continue the way we're going, there's there's going to be a world of hurt for a lot of folks. So is there yeah. is there any what can I learn from a farmer like you about my business?
3: Well, I think the main thing you can learn from a farmer like me is that the more the closer your relationship with your food sourcing the more skilled you will be maybe we could even call it uh, the more discerning uh you will be the more wise you will be in in your sourcing i can assure you i mean we supply like 50 restaurants and uh and and I can assure you that our we we don't whine about it every day, but but you know now that you and I can talk openly here.
0: Yes, please, let's. Um, <laughs> um,
3: one 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 of our yeah you know, one of our biggest frustrations is that we have a restaurant that gets you know 15 chickens a week from us, puts us on the little chalkboard local source, and then gets 200 chickens off the Cisco truck. Right. And and so so chefs or or. You know, we lose chefs because, well, look, I need my chickens, you know, within uh, a tenth of a pound of weight of each other in order to, you know, do plate costs and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. Well, we don't have a a warehouse of a million chickens to be able to search through and pick so that we can get yours within a tenth of a pound. Right. Some weeks they're bigger. Some weeks they're smaller. We have weather issues. Sometimes the weather's not very good. The chickens grow a little bit, you know, are not as uh, robust. And sometimes the weather's perfect and the chickens are just, "Ah," you know, they're really nice. And so, um, so you know, our uh, our need is we need chefs who are truly committed to where, you know, uh, uh, whatever a, a little more a pound or a little more a dozen eggs or whatever uh, is not going to you know destroy them, where they're really committed to it, and and um, and, and number two uh where they're they're willing to meet us halfway uh realizing that we don't have all the options that a, that a Cisco truck has now in a lot of ways we offer more options you know we can custom do things that you couldn't get you know from a Cisco truck but um, uh generally it, it we need we need folks who are committed to the local, committed to um, top quality, and are willing to, you know, to follow through with it. Um, You know, we, we one of our biggest issues is, you know, chefs want broken down chickens, You know, they want boneless, skinless breast or whatever. Right. They don't want to do, they don't want to do kitchen prep. Sure. Well, um, you know, the reason the industry can sell those at a very, very cheap price is because they do everything mechanically and oftentimes, with um with illegal labor. And I don't want to get into a big, you know, discussion about immigration or whatever, but but we use all legal workman comp, you know, uh um uh FICA withheld, all right? I mean, our mm-hmm. labor is, is is the real deal. Mm-hmm. And and um and at at our slaughterhouse, you know, everybody's getting uh you know, 15 bucks an hour and they're skilled. And we and we do everything by hand. Uh, you know, it's not we're not we're not beating we're not beating pink, pink slime off a beef carcass. <laughs> you we're know, um, and, and so so this this level of care and skill, um, you know, we can't do it any cheaper than you can do it in a in a kitchen prep. Right. And so the the thing is to become very creative. About using whole animals, using all all the things. Yep. In, in the kitchen, so that look either either you use the whole chicken or we've got to figure out something to do with a bunch of necks and backs and, and, and legs. Yep. And, and I, I'm I'm just using it as an as an example. And so when a when a chef when a chef um, uh, wants wants um, nothing but breast then obviously, you know, we have to deal with the rest of that chicken. What we what we beg is, or what what we find that really works for us, is to work with chefs who say, hey, I'll take the whole chicken and we'll do some different kinds of recipes, different kind of menu items, and we'll move the, you know, we'll use the whole thing. And, yeah. and you know, kind of the, no, the nose to tail idea.
0: Yep, the, um, and, go ahead, please, finish, yeah.
3: Yeah, and, and, and when when chefs do that, you know and then that's when we we hug them and kiss them and give them things and all sorts of all sorts of cool stuff uh,
0: one of my one of my favorite cookbooks is a very obscure title uh, written I think in the 40s or 50s by a Presbyterian minister called uh, the supper of the Lambs where he basically has a series of recipes based upon using a whole side of lamb um, as it used to be in olden times when you know we get sides of beef or, or carcasses in and sure. it, that was the business, you know. The creativity of the chef was was fundamentally challenged and honed by his ability to be able to use the whole animal and what came out of that, because nothing went to waste. So, um,
3: yeah. So we so we sit here and we we um, what we kind of make make fun of, for example, homeowners that are always wanting convenience, right? Oh, they just want convenience. Sure. Just want convenience. Why don't they come? Why don't they come to buy a restaurant? You know, where you have a sit down, and you actually, you know, uh, have to order. And you know, why do they go to Burger King and McDonald's or whatever? Mm-hmm. And, and and yet, and yet, what we find is more often than not, the chefs running these restaurants that that make jokes about consumers always wanting convenience. Well, these chefs are the same way. They want convenience too. Absolutely. Give me a box. Give me a box of breath. Give me I, I don't want you know, I don't want anything but uh but vole mignon or New York strip or whatever. And um, you know, and and well, you know, nature doesn't work that way. We got we gotta work with whole we gotta work with whole things.
0: Yep. Um, and so
3: and, and so as as creative as we've been at being able to produce it in volume without being in a confinement house and antibiotics and vaccinations the culinary industry needs to be just as creative to meet us part way and say, "Okay, you've been creative that way. We'll be creative in, in using the whole critter." As
4: I stand before you, my people,
3: on this day of humanist celebration, I say to you, "Will we find the devil in the bushes? No. He will be
4: perched high on the peace tree, devouring the suck in the fruit. There's the poverty weeds they waste in the field." In the fascination of man, and realize the accountability of the just and unjust. For at that moment, may we all be caught up like a rushing wind, to do not that jumbo jet flight. We call life.
0: So let's say that we don't. Let's say as a group of people, we stay blissfully ignorant about the opportunities out there to paint the picture of the, of the of the what the alternative might look like might be something like, you know, Chile and Argentina continue to cut down uh, rainforest in order to put up pasture lands for cheap beef. Uh, I actually visited a uh, a meat processing plant in Fort Morgan. Uh, Colorado uh a dozen years ago and I thought that was uh, you know, it's <laughs> funny you walk through the entire plant uh, and then the folks who run the plant the first place they take is they take out to lunch where they have beef. <laughs> I never I never felt closer to turning to a vegetarian that day uh since then. But um but it but it seems to me that uh we as a culture, as a as a craft have and Again, I don't want to paint a broad picture, so I'm going to take it on my nose and say that uh, uh, one of my fondest memories was when my first wife and I went on our honeymoon. We actually stayed in Germany and, and uh, had a, stayed at a family chalet in the Black Forest. And there was a little restaurant out on right across on the other hill. And right about two thirty in the afternoon, I would see the chef come out of the back door with a basket in his hand because he spent the next couple hours foraging um, and then brought all that back to the restaurant. And in my mind that painted such a romantic picture of what it must be like to be a chef and to actually be working and like integrated with the land. yet coming back to the United States, my experience has been more industrial factory production, which I happen to be good at yet uh, and I could raise a family and pay a, you know get paid a salary and, sure. and raise a family, but certainly, Maybe I'm just old enough to to want to care now. That maybe, mm-hmm. but that maybe I've again been part and parcel of the problem instead of the solution. So yeah,
3: well, it, it, it's it's cer- it's certainly uh, vulnerable. It's certainly uh, indicative indicative of vulnerability, which is one of the bases of good leadership. For you to you know, for you to recognize that, and the and the truth is that all of us have our you know our vulnerabilities. So some people, for example crucify us for raising for example cornish cross broilers you're supposed to raise, you know heritage heirloom you know uh this and and um i, I always respond that well you know we're in a context and and our context right now is the double-breasted heavy-breasted bird right uh, you know our ancestors uh, like the legs and thighs and broth you know <laughs> more than the breast but you know this is where we are and the reality is, a market will only let you go so far out of context before you become uh,
0: irrelevant. Uh,
3: ir- irrelevant, yes. Yep. I mean, like it's a, you know, you can be a nudist and you can be a Buddhist, but a nudist Buddhist, <laughs> you know, <you're> just weird. <laughs> <laughs> and and so and so, you know, we have to um, we have to appreciate where we are now. Interestingly, uh, we're now hatching a lot of our own um, our own pullets for eggs uh we we'll hatch I don't know what 6000 this summer I guess this has a, been a four year process of starting with a few hundred and then going on up to where hopefully we'll you know we'll be doing all of all of them and of course as you know that means there's a lot of of roosters uh because you know you're about 50-50 sure. and of course you know roosters don't lay eggs right and uh and so what do you do with those well you know in the industry they just throw them away just throw them in barrels and and get rid of them yep uh, but we're trying, we're trying to close that loop and explaining to our customers, okay, if you want eggs for your table, then, and, and you don't want all the brothers of the sisters that are going to lay the eggs, if you don't want the brothers, uh, dishonored by just being thrown away, well, you need to eat about four roosters a year in order to have enough eggs for your household to well, have four sisters that are laying your eggs for your household
0: so that seems pretty reasonable
3: that, that seems very very reasonable and what's been fascinating is that our customers have risen to the challenge now we're, we're we don't know if they'll go to three thousand but they've definitely come on up you know uh you know, to a, a lot you know a thousand or more and um and we're hoping we'll punch through this next level but uh you know people like to feel i think people Enjoy feeling that they can step into a story, a, 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 a righteous, a sacred story, a helpful story that they can step into it and participate in it. And, and that, that's part of the story that chefs can tell. Chefs, chefs are the first, you know, they're the first food storytellers. Right. And, and, and to be able to take that mantle uh, and, a, and appreciate that responsibility and leverage, leverage the special place that you have in, in a respected, honored, revered profession within the food sphere is, is really a privilege in, in my opinion. And, and, uh, I think too few chefs, what, sell themselves short in the power that they have and the, um, you know, the that the chance that they have to inspire and move and move people to this participatory it's it's very cool
0: it's uh it's fascinating that you' mentioned that Joel because I totally get that uh uh from time to time chefs in and including myself have kind of shied away from say the activist role or the teacher role because uh, I think sometimes we delude ourselves into thinking that uh, that it's that the relationship isn't as like, dynamic as it as it could be. That when folks come to us, they actually they actually want to hear the story. They actually want to be sold. They actually want yeah. to be led through the menu. It, they don't want to be uh, y- y- you know. It's a very dynamic relationship. And so I, I remember clearly in the uh, in the early or the early, early mid '90s, uh, I was working in South Florida, and the swordfish population was collapsing. And all of a sudden, swordfish prices went through the roof. And instead of like the markers, the 400-pound markers, they were bringing in 100-pound pups. And what mm. we what we discovered was is that uh, female swordfish needs to get to age seven be- before she even starts to uh, produce eggs. So what they were doing is they were continuing because swordfish was so popular, and we were so ready to buy it. Um, they started just catching all the swordfish they could get, which means less fewer females, which means no more. Uh, pups being, and the whole population crashed. So we as a culture got together in South Florida as chefs and said, we're sorry, we're not going to buy that anymore. And within about 18 months, that swordfish population came back because the salespeople could not sell any swordfish to us. So it got finally got back to the fishermen that they better switch to another catch because they're not buying any swordfish. So I'm just curious as to whether or not our listeners, the, the fellow culinarians uh, listening to this particular show on the podcast, really realize the economic weight that we wield as a culture and as a craft to help shift some of the conversation about what it really means to be sustainable local uh regional natural instead of like as you say buying ten pol- uh, buying buying ten birds and just putting it on a chalkboard as kind of like uh, my token attempt at being uh, at being locally sourced <laughs>
3: yeah. Yeah, uh, I'll tell you. Uh, we we have found we have found over the years. You know, we've been in this now for decades, and we have found that if we're very transparent about about an issue, uh, whether it's it's a, it's a, a spike in prices because maybe there was uh, a low grain harvest, or uh, a spike in prices because there was avian flu and all the hatcheries got quarantined and we're having to change sources of chicks or or yeah i mean name your name your issue um, that that every time that happens we we are very transparent with our patrons and they're actually eager they if you have a loyal uh, if you have trust people are actually eager to help you be successful to help you in your vision, in your in your sacred uh, mission, if you will, uh, people don't shy away from grand schemes and from uh, people like to feel like they're able to to be a part of something big and something noble and something uh, uh, awesome. And I think too often, we, you know, Sure, people are frustrating. They're picky. They send stuff <laughs> the kitchen. You know, I, I, I get that. It's it's easy to hate your patrons, right? Right. Uh, and your <laughs> um, employees. Yeah. Right. 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 But if we if we could get you know punched through that, and I agree with you, uh, and realize the um, you know the impact that we can have, uh, suddenly going to that kitchen becomes just a real uh, unique opportunity to move the needle forward I mean name your needle whatever it is but but uh, uh, that's a that's a neat thing to do but it, it takes it takes um, communicating it takes communicating the vision communicating where we want the needle to go and it and it's over and over and over and over uh, you know there's what well, there's a rule of thumb that in marketing it takes six touches before somebody buys something sure so you have to you have to is six touches and so think about that uh what that means is that that one annual one annual uh pull out the stops explain what we're doing day doesn't get the job done it 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 has to be um it has to be over and over and over and of course th- this is what Chipotle has done right i mean they you know they they put it on their napkins they put it on their wraps they put you yeah. know they put on the marquees. I mean, they've been very, very aggressive. And, and of course, you know, this is one reason why they have so many enemies uh, in the industry is because they've been very, you know, outspoken about what they're trying to do and messaging it. And, in fact, you know, many of us think that they were actually sabotaged during that, you know, food outbreak. Sure. Um, and they, they've literally taken uh, tens of thousands of swab samples. This is the first uh, food bacteria outbreak. Of a uh, you know of of a major type that they've never been able to find a smoking gun on, and that points even you know more closely to something you know sabotage probably you know in the in the fresh sliced lemons that were just out on the counter that people used you know to put in their their uh, drinks.
0: That's um, it's fascinating. That you should bring up chipotle because I know as you know sometimes as a chef in there very easily be it's very easy to become insulated in your environment and think that you know the problems that 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 you're dealing with are unique to you or unique to the particular establishment and sometimes it feels like it's very difficult to make any kind of positive change whether you want to or not yet here's a company like chipotle who's made it one of their core missions to actually change the way that pork is raised in this country
3: yeah yeah and yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And and, and they're they're having a you know if they, I mean they they've certainly made a change in the industry on on the uh, production model, uh, and now you know lest I be accused of being too much of a cheerleader, I challenge them to move forward with uh, with GMO free uh, genetically modified organisms mm-hmm. you know, free grain. You know they they've made a big deal about their produce and all that being GMO free, but the the but the they grain. still buy. You know, millions and millions of dollars worth of grain, GMO. We we uh, we pay extra for GMO-free. Um, and so the the two restaurants that we supply, the one in uh, Harrisonburg and the Barracks Road Shopping Center, one in Charlottesville, those two do have GMO-free uh, pork, but the others don't. And and there again, that's a that's a place, uh, and I'm sure they're working on it internally. Um, but that's the place where they could you know they could really uh, they could really bring some power to bear in the in the whole um, uh, farm space by aggressively you know moving toward Gmo free that would be very cool
0: yeah I mean and and for a, for a nationwide system to be able to uh, act kind of like microcosmically in and their geographical areas I guess proves the point um, and and takes away the argument that any chef would have, regardless of where his restaurant is, that he can't actually act locally, because here's a national chain that's made it their business to act locally, and and we're going to tell ourselves that we can't. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just that's just bullshit. We're just making it easy on ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny that you should bring up uh, wheat because I just saw you the other night when I did a uh, pre online screening of uh, What's with Wheat, the new documentary. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which was yeah. which was very fascinating as far as uh, uh, GMO grains uh, and yeah. not and not only GMO grains but also you know that entire chain of events that happens with uh, yeah. everything that they spray on it and, they, um, and the, uh, the and the and the and everything um, right and so you made a, you made a, a comment uh, in it uh, if I remember correctly. This, this whole idea of the symbiotic relationship between agriculture and animals and how you need to have them both together whereas most of our food systems are starkly separate which in fact um, I think if I recall separately you call them dead zones do you, you want to elaborate a little bit more about that
3: yeah well what ha- what happens is that when you use when you use artificials to grow your uh, crops whether it's You know grain or or cotton or whatever and you use and and you you segregate you separate the animal from the plant so that you're having to compensate what the animals bring to the equation uh, with synthetics the the ecology doesn't metabolize that nearly as well and so what you have is is toxins into the soil you have reduced bacteria you know mycorrhizae and, and mycelium and everything that's in the soil which means the soil uh, can't hold nutrients. It, it's not as it's not as spongy. It's not as resilient. Uh, it doesn't have the carbon and all that in it. And so then a lot of this runs off, and that's what, of course, what's created the uh, the dead zone, the size of New Jersey in the Gulf of Mexico. That dead zone, that dead zone has come since World War II. I mean, when you think of the continuum of history. And all the bison and all the passenger pigeons and the prairie chickens,
4: mm-hmm. and
3: the elk, and the antelope, and, and and the you know the things that grew on this continent, actually with more pounds of animals than we produce in the United States today. Uh, so it was extremely productive, extremely productive. Um, and you realize that this dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico has only come since the since World War II. You realize. As you mentioned at the very top of the interview, you know the trajectory, this 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 trajectory that we're on is a is an unsustainable. Uh, it's a trajectory straight to, you know, annihilation, and uh, and we've got we've got to we can't just stop it where it is. We have to actually reverse the trajectory, so that the endpoint changes. Yeah, and, I have... and, and and that is going to take a fundamentally integrated system so that so that we we integrate you know and here i'll, I'll go to one of my favorite boxes is, is you know rather is uh, you know in the perfect world we would have a little chicken house i mean like maybe you know 20 chickens or something mm-hmm. behind every restaurant or, or 50 or something that would eat all the kitchen scraps and then the eggs would go right back into the kitchen now you don't have to have the delivery guy or the farm that even that that even puts the food on a on a diesel truck right you you don't you don't send the scraps away even if they're going for composting i mean as noble as that is uh to actually you know integrate things and i realize that you know in metropolitan areas this might be a little difficult but 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 uh, you know you can't you don't do until you think and and well you don't do until you talk you don't talk until you think so you know, you, you, have to, you have to conceive of what does an integrated system look like. And the, and the man there in the German uh, Black Forest that you described on your honeymoon, mm-hmm. I guarantee you he was not getting eggs from a factory farm <laughs> a thousand miles away. He might he, he might have had a little chicken coop out there, you know, behind the restaurant, and they ate the kitchen scraps, and he brought the eggs back into the kitchen. Uh, that's very, very likely. And so, uh, when I say integrated, I mean I mean to do it commercially. Yes, but uh, there are a lot of um, there are a lot of wastes and scraps and 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 uh, what inefficiencies in the system that we cover up with petroleum with cheap energy. We cover up these inefficiencies in the system. We think we're really efficient, but actually we're just floating on oil.
0: Right, which which brings me to the next question: Is do any of us actually know what real food costs, given all the subsidies?
3: You know, that's such a great question. And um,
0: do we really know what a pound of chicken is supposed to cost (laughs) without you know? Because we get very we get really used to 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 crushing food cost numbers, and if it gets to the point where it's three dollars and twenty three cents for a chicken breast, or, or versus. You know, yeah. four dollars for a chicken breast. All of a sudden, you've got someone looking over your shoulder, going, "Well, why, why, why are you buying it so expensive? Why you can get it so cheap?"
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, you yeah, know, there are there are all sorts of, uh, as you know, the term externalized costs mm-hmm. in in the system, and those externalized costs are everything from, you know, from service service staff that that gets a you know two dollar and sixty cent minimum wage and depends on tips. Mm-hmm. to to um, you know to farmers that are receiving billions of dollars in subsidies for cheap corn and soybeans and 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 that sort of thing. Uh, actually, they're trying to move away from subsidies and calling it crop insurance, but you know that's just that's just clever speak. Um, and and so there have been some interesting things this uh, this spring, actually, I participated in an international uh, uh, consortium in San Francisco. Called the true cost accounting conference, and what it and, and the whole goal of it was what is the true cost of this? And the the speakers were fascinating. Like one, uh, I mean, I spoke at one session, but one session that I sat in on was the end of a of a research project in, in North Carolina, researching the the the, um, the the spheres the spheres of health. Issues that come in a community when it when it has a um, a, a a pig factory. <coughs> you, know, they, they, you know they've got a lot of lot of big uh, industrial pig farming in North Carolina. Yes, they do. And yeah, and um, and it was really really fascinating. they the the research uh, teased out every possible. Um, you know, other other cause, other justification, all the the things, and uh, man, uh, things from you know heart disease to uh, um, dementia, the, every single um, morbidity issue, index, yeah, yeah, index um, spiked, literally spiked where these houses were, and of course the. The more proximate you live to them, you know, the more dramatic the uh, spike was, and so there are insidious things happening that, of course, you know, we don't capture the cost in. Insidious things, everything from fecal particulate floating in the air to you know tainted uh, groundwater, uh, you know, to uh, uh, you know to to just um, the the association with all this. And so you know, there's a lot of things going on that is hard to measure. And of course, you know, we know that the omega three, omega six uh, ratios are completely different. Sure. The, uh, ribofla- the riboflavin, uh, rates. You know, uh, grass finished beef, for example, 300 percent higher in riboflavin. Riboflavin is the calming, it's the calming nerve fatty acid that makes you calm instead of you know shooting somebody or making road rage.
4: And, and you know, you
3: wonder. <laughs> You wonder sometimes, you know, why is everybody on edge? And uh, and a lot of it is that we're not getting these essential fatty acids because we've taken shortcuts with our soil, with our food, and with our farming. Hence, then our food. It, it, you know it it boils down to something that simple. And and these are these are intricately related. I don't think I think your question is so pregnant because I don't think we've begun to wrap our heads around. All of these nuanced ramifications—from you know, from pollution to soil erosion to uh, you know, to to uh, uh, taint to carbon in the air—I um, I mean, I don't think we've we've begun to scratch the surface on these nuances. And you know, we certainly are not the first civilization to you know wrestle the, with this. Yeah. So the the rise and fall of civilizations for a long time. Has been based on you know resource depletion. Right. Uh, it starts and it rises on resource availability and then depletes the resource and the civilization collapses. I mean that you know guns, germs and steel collapse. You know Jared Diamond and these guys that that, that, that this is you know this is all well documented. I think what's different now is the sheer uh, capacity that we have with technology to do more damage faster than any other civilization. And, that, and that's, of course, what we're seeing with the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. In fact, you know, there are 700 uh, riparian dead zones in the United States alone. Um, and, you know, these are, these are huge things. The, uh, the Chesapeake Bay, which used to have, when the Jamestown colony was founded there, you know, they they've found the garbage pit for the, James, for the first Jamestown fort. And the garbage pit, you know, they, they always they read these diaries of these, uh, you know, John, Captain John Smith and mm-hmm. stuff, and these diaries of how they could, the the Chesapeake Bay was as clear as, as the waters in Jamaica, mm-hmm. you know, and you could look down, you could see down a hundred feet, it was just crystal clear. Well, nobody in you know recent times can ever remember anything but turbidity, and uh, in the Chesapeake oh. Bay, you, you you can you can. If you put your arm down in the water there, you can almost see your fingertips to your elbow, but that's about as far down as you can see. And they wonder how in the world could the water have been this clear? And well, they just found the. In the last 10 years, they found the uh, garbage heap for the fort. Uh, they thought it was, you know, way out there in the water somewhere, but they found out that actually, that they found the fort. They found every every single um, palisade hole, you know, and they've been mm-hmm. able to re- recreate it, and. Um, and what they found in the garbage heap were 12-inch oysters shells. Right. 12 right. Inch. Can, can you ima- can you imagine a 12-inch oyster? And and so the, the so the thing was, you know, oysters are like the you know they're like the kidneys of the ocean, right? Right. And and so um, the Chesapeake Bay was full of these big, massive 12-inch oysters. Well, no wonder it was clear. It was clean what i'm what i'm getting at is that this that this uh this accelerated this accelerated degeneration which has happened with mechanization and technology um is is fairly new i mean at least old civilizations it took you know it took uh um uh, 800 years right <laughs> you know to collapse and and here we are you know we're, we're using up our stuff you know way way faster than that so it's you know it's, it's it's time for pause and, and I guess my bottom line on this about the externalized cost is I think it's fascinating that in our, in our western accounting systems, we don't have a way in accounting to capture these externalized costs. If I, if I, uh, you know, dump a bunch of chicken manure out in the stream and pollute the stream, the cleanup cost does not come off of our gross domestic product. The cost of that cleanup Adds to our gross domestic product, so that so that uh, uh, sickness becomes a national asset
0: instead of a right.
3: <laughs> Disease becomes a national asset instead of a national liability. And if that isn't a wacky way to uh, to conduct accounting business as a culture, I don't know what is.
0: So, Joel, I have a phil- I have a, both a practical and a philosophical question for you. So you've got 550 acres in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley. Is it reasonable to expect that there is a limit to uh, the amount of production that you can see on that 550 acres and still be sustainable?
3: Um, Well, I'm I'm sure there is a limit. But we have not even approached that limit. And let me explain it this way, lest somebody think, oh, my, he just slipped over the slippery slope. Of, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, <laughs> conquistador mentality. Right. Uh, we, we do have numerous, uh, numerous, what should I say, uh, benchmarks or, or, um, or boundary protocols. For example, for, let me just give you a couple examples. One is that we don't want to sell hay or buy hay which means that the herbivores have to harvest all their feed and produce all the fertility to produce that feed in situ, on site, okay? All right? Um, We don't want to be in the manure hauling business. So if we produce more manure, for example, nitrogen, than the land can handle, then that shows that we're producing too much manure, like, you know, if we're bringing in, uh, bringing in feed, for example, to feed the broiler chickens or, or egg layers or whatever, or pigs, uh, the omnivores. We don't bring in any grain for the cows, but uh, bringing in grain for the chickens. So, so the, the manure load uh, becomes, becomes a, you know, a, a benchmark of sustainability. Um, uh, okay, so those are some specific things. Then beyond that, you have all the stackable, the stackable potentials. For example, uh, you know we could have, we could have 50 acres of orchard. We could have 50 acres of vineyard. Timber. Uh, we're running, we're, we're running pigs in the forest. Um, you know, a Spanish style, uh, acorn fattening. Well, my goodness, you know, uh, we've got 450 acres of forest. We've only, we, we're right now, we're only running pigs in about 80 acres of that. Well we can expand that to the whole four hundred and fifty acres if we had if we had higher water tapped which is what we're working on right now, uh, building ponds on up, you know, in a higher elevation so we can get gravity fed water over more acres so we can get water. We don't want to be hauling water uh, to the to the animals. So you have you have both horticultural and animal development that can you know, that can happen. I mean we, we only run the broiler chickens on um, on roughly 30 acres, well, we could run them on 100 acres instead of just 30 acres. So so we feel like, you know, we're only scratching the surface as to what could be produced. And so there, there's a tremendous amount of, you know, expansionable uh, opportunity right, right here, e- even with as much as we're doing.
0: Right, and I guess it was kind of a red herring or a straw man question because, you know, I, I think for... Uh, that you'll agree that one of the most defining qualities of American life has been this kind of drive to do better, to to be bigger, to, you know, the, with, with the westward expansion and everything, that it's kind of in our nature to, you know, build a bigger restaurant, to put more seats into it, to to make it a chain, to to systematize it and continue to, uh, you know, reap the benefit of, of more and more customers and Um, I guess, generally speaking, the the philosophical question is, given the present paradigm of our food production and the way that we prepare and sell food, you know, how much is enough? I mean, I'm not, I I, I don't mean that, you know, when the collapse comes, we're all going to be kind of like uh, uh, going around in horse and buggies like our friends in Pennsylvania, but I I mean, I, I can kind of see some sense into that, so is it enough for me to have you know 40 seats in a restaurant and be open five nights a week and or 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 does that profit motive still does it is is that an imperative anymore or should it be
3: yeah well yeah all all great uh, great discussion questions one one thing i would say is that again we're in a context and our context right now is not little house on the prairie
4: <laughs>
3: uh, you know we we now have and I won't get in a in a huge political discussion here but we we have a very cash oriented uh a, a cash prejudicial and i mean i mean pro cash prejudicial right. uh, situation from from minimum wage to workmen's comp to FICA withholding taxes you know uh, uh, there's a tremendous amount of governmental um, manipulation and and penetration into the marketplace you know when Paul when, when Paul said well I don't need any uh, money to build a door for this cabin uh, I'll just put it together with wooden pegs I don't need I don't need to buy nails well um, you know he was living in a day before the Internal Revenue Service <laughs> right <laughs> and, and so he didn't need to earn money for ta- for you know for much for taxes and so um, so what I'm getting at is that all of this, you know, regulatory uh, um, environment does make it more and more difficult for a for a for a business that doesn't want to share that value as the be all and end all, all the things that you described, bigger, faster, better, systematized. You know, sell to Google or whatever. Um, uh, if if you if you to use a biblical term if you eschew that whole you know Wall Streetification if you mm-hmm. will um, the 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 system um, is prejudiced against being a square peg in that round hole and 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 daily it's becoming more and more difficult to just be a Paul Engels and you know and 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 do only uh, whatever you know, just what what you want to do, um, and not what not interact. Okay, when you think of energy and communication and transportation and the financial structure, it's more and more difficult today not to um, not to marry all of that, you know, as a business person.
0: And that's our interview with uh, Joel Salatin of Polyface Farms. From uh, the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia If you want to learn more Pick up uh, Michael Pollan's The Omnivore's Dilemma Uh, He's been featured in articles And symposiums And talks all over the world Sharing his views on a biodiverse farm Consider finally that it's just some stuff on a plate None of it really matters It doesn't define you as a person Or make you any more special Or less than anyone else It's just a dance that we're engaged in So we might as well laugh and enjoy every bit of it even the crappy parts while we're doing it. Or didn't you know that the purpose of your life should be to enjoy it? Chef Life Radio is a production of Foodworks Incorporated, your source for culinary career empowerment at foodworksinc.com and in partnership with Audible. For listeners of Chef Life Radio, Audible is offering a free audio download with a free 30-day trial uh, to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Click on the ad in the show notes to grab something that can shift your trajectory forever. Tonight we recommend Ego is the Enemy by favorite Ryan Holiday. It kicks ass. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com forward slash ChefLifeRadio. Again, that's audibletrial.com, Chef Life radio for your free audiobook. The Heirloom Foundation, a registered 501-3C nonprofit organization that is combating the prevalence of issues like suicide, substance abuse, and the emotional impact of long hours, in a perfection-obsessed industry. They bring culinary professionals together to increase awareness about the repercussions of the high-stakes, high-pressure lives of chefs through public outreach, networking, and benefit events. The Heirloom Foundation advocates for healthier work environments through their network of chefs, tours, and other industry stakeholders who commit to providing a healthy, supportive restaurant culture. They reinvest in our communities through direct service grants to nonprofit organizations that address mental health, stress management, work-life balance, substance abuse prevention, life skills, and other relevant, uh, relevant issues. Learn more at theheirloomfoundation.org. Justwithissues.com, Cat Kinsman's site that deals with real issues in the real world of depression, anxiety, addiction, eating disorders, and more running rampant in the food community. On the site, she invites people involved in the industry, not just chefs, to share their stories and resources for dealing with the pressures of restaurant life so that other people may feel less alone. This is not-for-profit. This is just because she gives a damn. You can get involved and share your story at chefswithissues.com and Entrepreneurial Chef magazine. From idea to open for business, entrepreneurialchef.com is building an online community where entrepreneurs in the industry can share lessons, best practices, and actionable advice for greater lasting success. Visit entrepreneurialchef.com, join the club, and get your free copy of the 10 Rules of Entrepreneurship. And uh, you can connect with us on Twitter at, at Chef Life Radio, Facebook.com forward slash Chef Life Radio. Stand tall and frosty, brothers and sisters. Until next time, here at www.chefliferadio.com, be good and do good. And leave the hall light on, honey. I might be a little late.
5: empties Lord. as soon as i find where they lay tied off them jolly and leaving mines on a long hot summer day and for every day i'm working on the illinois river get a half a day off with pay oh topo picking up barges on a long hot summer day Gal in weekend, she's a good old gal, okay. Oh, she's sitting there waiting by a window fan on a long hot summer day. Forever, every day I'm working on the hill or ever get a half a day off.
4: is kicked in there man
0: that's right we'll see you next time love you like sin miss you like poison this is chef life radio and I'm out of here